welcome to the Vandal Factory podcast. My name's Natalie Quatermass. I'm Henry Raby. And together we are Vandal, Vandal Factory. Factory. And this is the Vandal Factory Factory Floor Cut. So normally on the Vandal Factory podcast, you'll hear interviews with amazing activists and artists. And we don't have enough time to put the whole interviews up there. But we have such awesome chats, we thought... It's about time that we started sharing the whole interviews with you. So we did a special episode on disability arts and activism back in December 2023. So you're going to hear the full conversation we had with Jill Crawshaw. Jill was such a wonderful person to speak to. I could have actually um, just talked to her all day and I hope we get to we cross paths again. She's Leeds based, isn't she? She's Leeds so based. We'll, we'll see her again because um, I think actually at one point we continued, we'd stopped recording <laughs> and then we just continued chatting and I was like, press play, Henry, press play. <laughs> more, like, more, this is, more. This is so good. Um, she was awesome and had such an amazing energy and I'm sure that comes across in her interview as well. Let us know if you what you think, if you enjoy it and check out Jill's work. Yeah, and check out the full episode if you're interested, the full 90-minute special on disability arts and activism and other Vandal Factory episodes. Here it is. So we're here back in the studio at Chapel FM Art Centre. We've had a really good day out we to have. Manchester over the Pennines to the People's History Museum in Manchester. Um, but now we're back on Yorkshire soil to chat to <laughs> Jill Crawshaw. So Jill is an activist and curator of disability arts. Her exhibitions she's curated possible all along. Piss on Pity, Shoddy, The Reality of Small Differences and the current exhibition, Any Work That Wanted Doing. She has a a book coming out, well, an essay, She's a booklet, a little mini book called uh, Rights Not Charity, Protest Textiles and Disability Activism, and uh, also led a workshop at the Manchester People's History Museum on the fabric of protest. Welcome, wow, Jill. Wow, welcome, Jill, who I'm Thank already you. in a, the short amount of time that I've uh, spoken to you, getting that you're someone who hides your light under a bushel. You're, you need to be proud of this amazing work. Please tell us, where did your, your interest interest in activism, disability, textiles, where did that all begin? I'll try not to go into such a long story. I'm, yeah, I came to Leeds years ago um, to university to do textile design. So that was a one start. At that point, it was while I was at university, I became disabled. Um, Later on, I got got involved in the disabled people's movement and I was a local contact for DAN, the Disabled People's Direct Action Network in the, um, throughout much of the 90s. So DAN um, was a group that used to typically... um, block traffic, handcuff ourselves to buses and trains. We had a real focus on um, accessible public transport pre the Disability Discrimination Act, pre the Equality Act. Um, So I've been involved in activism, uh, including disabled people's activism in the past. And in more recent years, um, I 
yeah, got into curating, I suppose. I haven't, in, in the meantime, I haven't had um, a career in the arts, but I got involved in curating an exhibition, which itself was a form of protest. Mm. And that was the one um, that you mentioned, the reality of small differences. And that was protesting about Grace and Perry, uh, exhibition of work by Grace and Perry being put in a venue in Leeds that wasn't accessible to everybody. Um so rather than doing a picket or, you know, I had the idea of let's do a counter exhibition to that. And that work in that exhibition was textile work by disabled artists from Yorkshire. So this was starting to bring textiles mm. and activism together, I suppose. That was a few years ago. Um, and then, yes, that went down so well, it was a, it became um, an event in its own right, as well as being an effective protest as it happened. It certainly got the issue raised. Um, it was in the media. Also, you know, the museum in question installed a stair climber because there was a small flight of stairs up to one of the rooms where some of the work, where some of Grace and Perry's work was being shown. Um, so yeah, it, as I say, it was it was a really great exhibition mm. actually, and got me in touch with put me in touch with lots of artists around the region that I didn't know, um, and a lot of those artists and people who come to see the exhibition said, "When are you going to do another one? This was <laughs> great." If there were artists, we don't get enough opportunities to do this. We want more opportunities to show our work. And that resulted in Shoddy a bit later. And then after that, there's been been others. I won't go through them all. Um, and, yeah, yeah. They haven't all used textiles, but, you know, it, it seemed... Well, when I, I organised Shoddy, that's when I started thinking about issues around textiles and disabled people particularly. Um, I was just thinking around the topic, really, and it turned out there was quite a lot to think about. There were all mm. sorts of things, all sorts of connections. And, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that comes up in the in the book, Rights Not Charity, that you mentioned, that's going to be published by Common Threads Press later this month. Um, and it comes up in terms of thinking about the textile industry. But, of course, it comes up in terms of contemporary art as well, a lot of contemporary artists using textiles. And most of my projects have been about working with disabled artists and about raising issues to do with disabled people's lives. So generally, you know, I, if I want to call myself a curator, I'd say I'm a curator who's informed by experience of activism um, and with this interest in textiles sometimes. Um, yeah, I've got an agenda when mm. I'm curating. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not just curating for the sake of it. I do have an agenda and that is is to raise issues and get people thinking and talking about disabled people's lives a bit more. Fantastic. So, yeah. I'm very, very excited to uh, read this booklet, Common Threads. Um, so you've sort of started to introduce us a little bit as to how that, that seemed to have come about. Seemed. Ho-ho. <laughs> um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about, about what... if? anyone's going to go and explore that and read it it's do you say it's not yet been published published soon um so if they google jill crawshaw common threads shortly this will be yeah able well to it might come up access. now because i know yeah. they've been really good at, at putting the word out about it yeah i mean that's that's you know very clearly about 
politics and activism because it's about banners of the disabled people's movement. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, thinking around issues to do with textiles and obviously all sorts of social movements and social justice movements use banners, but... That includes the disabled people's movement. And we've had some good ones. Mm. And I'm not going to say it all because you won't want to read the book if I <laughs> tell you everything that's in it. But, but I was just thinking about, yeah, that there have been some really good ones. It's interesting because, you know, textiles, using textiles can be something that's quite accessible for disabled people, accessible for a lot of people for sure, mm. but accessible for disabled people. And thinking about, yeah, just disabled people in protest and how that oftentimes, anyway, you know, people don't expect disabled people to be out on the streets and to be protesting. Mm. Um, so, you know, we're sort of challenging a few stereotypes and, yeah, yeah, yeah making and people think twice about what disabled people want, um, yeah, what disabled people are capable of. What, what Hen as we mentioned, Henry and I have just come back from Manchester's people's why do I always get that wrong? Manchester's People's Working the History. History the People History Museum. Um, I, and, and we're talking, thinking uh, in front of these glorious banners that have been made and curated in that exhibition there. And we were talking about how, um, <laughs> sounds obvious, but the textiles are tactile and visual and colourful and bold and um, you can use words but there's also an awful lot of imagery that seems like um, it's another way of staking a claim for a disabled person who's often made invisible or, or isn't, is not that their uh, needs are not being thought of and they're being excluded. It's a way of becoming extra visible really when you're doing space. a protest. Yeah. yeah. And that, that connection, I don't think, had been like quite as visceral for me before until I'd been to that um, exhibition today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. No, that's absolutely right. And they're a way... And not just banners, but other textiles are a way mm. to express strong feelings, you know, and, and to express anger. Um, they can be used that way, you know, the, the humble textile. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's there's also this um, quilting in particular has got such a rich history. Um, but we were talking briefly before, I only know a tiny bit about this, but uh, sort of a history in South America with enslaved people using quilting as uh, a coding and ways of symbolising and sending messages. I might be going off-piste here, that might be something slightly different, but there's certainly a, a, an idea of groups of people who are, who are oppressed sitting around and making something together and doing something with your hands and that enabling stories to occur in the same way you'd sit around a fire I think mm. and start mm. telling stories and you I start think it's scheming, using material yeah sorry yeah that's the I'm using materials that are to hand as well mm. that you can get hold of yeah yeah, yeah. Which, you know, and making something making so something out of almost nothing sometimes with scraps and reusing things mm. and the offcuts. Yeah. yeah, which and, of yeah. course then ties into the environmental movement and sure. and and reusing and, and has overlaps with uh, that whole 
protest yeah. movement as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, in terms of disabled people, you know, then textiles has been used in institutions for disabled people to keep people quiet, to keep people busy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the past, whether that's been in, in asylums and workhouses right. um, and, you know, needlework to keep particularly women there quiet, um, something to get on with, something to do. Also, sometimes those institutions would sell that work, so make money out of it as well. Um, but there's, you know, a long history as well of, of needlework, of sewing, knitting, etc., etc., being used, as I say, in institutions for disabled people. Mm-hmm. I'm quite interested in that for a number of... of almost, you know, reasons that are pulling against each other a bit because, um, you know, the the exhibitions that I've curated are art exhibitions, working with disabled artists. And very often I think people's view of what disabled artists might be producing has been influenced a bit by what they know about the sort of work that's produced in institutions, in day centres, right. that's maybe produced, you know, as, as yeah, occupational therapy, mm-hmm. um, which is all well and good, you know, and there's I'm not saying that there's not value in that, that, but then people have this other idea, oh, disabled people, disabled people in, in textile art, it, it must right. be this, mm-hmm. it must be the sorts of things that people mm. produce in day centres. So, you know, that, yeah, people, when they've been to a number of exhibitions I've organised, have been like, oh, my goodness, I wasn't expecting this. This is amazing. I yeah. was expe- I had this idea in my head it would be this, and it isn't. Oh, yes, of course, these are artists, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that, you know, that that, uh, that is interesting, let's say. But also, on the other hand, a lot of that work that was produced in institutions was incredibly skillful and you know so yes the institutions were able to make money out of it um and yeah so that's quite interesting so i'd like to delve into that side of it a bit more but of course none of this stuff you know is it probably doesn't exist anymore um that's the thing about textiles you know they're easy and portable to carry about but they don't necessarily last very long or people don't necessarily value them just see it as a piece of whatever you know um yeah, but I'd quite like to look into that idea and try and dig out some of that or some sort of images or some sort of evidence of, yeah, the really skillful work that disabled people have made. Well, we've got, you've very kindly brought along with us a booklet, a zine, would you call this a zine? I think it's Ooh. a very, a very Ooh. beautiful zine uh, that's called A Handsome Testimonial, The Life and Times of James Scott, 1829 to 1912, a deaf man who lived and worked in Horbury, Yorkshire, being one of many disabled people who contributed to the textile industry of this region. I cannot wait to get stuck into this. Can you give us a little overview? Who was James Scott? Uh, well, I won't give you an overview of James Scott, actually, particularly. I might mention James Scott, but this is some ongoing research I've been doing as well. I said there's quite a lot to talk about in disabled people and textiles. So I've been researching disabled people who work in textile mills um, from the Industrial Revolution onwards, really. Um, a lot of it has focused on the Industrial Revolution. And I'm wanting to show mainly that disabled people are everywhere. Disabled people have been active contributors and are active contributors to the world in lots of different ways. Here's one example of where disabled people have been 
at the thick of things haven't been bystanders, and that's in the textile industry, which obviously was the driving force of the industrial revolution in this country and was phenomenally important in this region and in this city. Mm. Leeds. <laughs> where we are. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've been researching that to just because I wanted to challenge some ideas that come the Industrial Revolution, disabled people weren't able to work, were all went to the workhouse, and that was it for disabled people in the workplace. And I wondered if that was right, really. Um, and there was a couple of things I was thinking about, and of course it isn't. Of course, there were loads of disabled people working in, working in textile mills. Yes, a lot of people became disabled. That's what I was going to say. Is is was that something that that ch- changed people's um, attitudes at all? Do you know about this? I, I imagine suddenly, if you've got a, a building, buildings where everyone's working in that community, and it's so dangerous, and people are regularly becoming deaf and and going through life altering injury, you'd think that 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 might challenge, unfortunately for the wrong reasons, that might then challenge people's perceptions of what is what a disabled person yeah. is capable of yeah. at that time. I mean, I don't know, because it's different times, isn't it? It's a long yeah. time ago and we can't sort of, you know, plonk our thinking on top of what sure. might have been going on for people then. And I think, you know, I think life was hard mm. for a lot of working class people. For all working class people, yeah. life was very hard if we're going back to the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And and maybe to an extent, this was like, this is this is what happens at work. This is mm. what we've got to live with. Yeah. And this is even harder, yes, but this is how it is. And certainly into the 20th century, you talk about hearing loss, you know, that I think a lot of mill workers, again, just took that for granted. Mm. This is, yeah, you know, yeah, loads of us are deaf now. Mm. Um, And, you know, but made something of that in terms of lip reading, um, for example. So, you know, and that being a bit of a badge of honour for people who worked in the mills, that they, you know, it showed how tough, how resilient they were, and it showed how they, you know, could get one over on their managers and overseers who couldn't, you know, couldn't lip read and who could pass messages, that sort of thing. Um, So... Yeah, yeah. So there's all that history. There's a lot of history going on there. So thinking, yeah, about the mass of people who maybe became disabled through um, industrial injury, basically. Then another strand of people, and James is one of those, James Scott, who the uh, zine's about. Then, you know, I was also thinking, well, you know, these were noisy places in the mills, but, you know that wouldn't have been a disadvantage for people who were deaf, for Mm. people who, you know, were already deaf and thinking about going to work. Um, And James Scott is one of the ex-pupils of, uh, I'm going to use the term that it was called at the time, the Yorkshire Institution for the Deaf and Dumb, which was a big school for deaf children in Doncaster, which still exists, actually, that school. Um, And James was one of the pupils there. That school in the 1840s and then later in the 1850s did a survey of their ex-pupils to try and find out whether they were churning out, you know, useful members of society, whether right. the education that people had um, had been, yeah, meant that they were going off and doing jobs and whatever. So they did a survey of employers and family members and other people um, to find out what people were working at, what they were doing now. And, of course, that showed that people were working in all sorts of industries, but it being Yorkshire, of course, many of them were working in textiles. 
And, you know, this was interesting to me with trying to find out you know, yes, were the disabled people who worked in the industry. So, yeah, James was one of those. And I think it's an interesting story. I won't give it all away. Um, yeah, James is an interesting story because he, you know, clearly wasn't dependent. He didn't fit this stereotype that, you know, maybe really took hold in Victorian times that, you know, poor, tragic, disabled people, we've got to look after them or we've got to pity them or we've got to be frightened of them or whatever, you know, all these these uh, thinking that disabled people had about, that Victorians had about disabled people. James went to work, looked after his mother for years and years, um, stayed working in Horbury near Wakefield. He's just, as I say, as it says on the cover there that you read out, he's just one example of a number of deaf and disabled people mm. who did that, who were living useful lives, who were just getting on with things. So I thought that was another interesting strand of it. And there's, yeah, there's lots more stories to tell and hopefully... Um, yeah, I'm going to do another zine that tells a few more of those stories. That also links into my current project, which is an exhibition that's just opened at Leeds Industrial Museum. Um, and that exhibition is called Any Work That Wanted Doing. It's called Any Work That Wanted Doing because that's uh, sort of taken from the evidence that was given to the Factories Inquiry Commission of 1833 by a disabled Leeds man called John Dawson. And John had been one of the many people who'd worked since childhood in a mill and become disabled as a result. But he gave evidence to that inquiry, to that commission, as did many other disabled people. And I think that's really important to remember because by giving evidence, often in the face of opposition from their managers, from the mill owners, by giving that evidence, their voices were a really, really important part of the movement for factory reform. Right. Yeah. So I think that links mm. back to something you said ages ago, you know, yeah. about how people may maybe viewed themselves. And I think, you know, obviously people viewed disability very differently in those days. But yes, I, I just think that's, you know, those those people were active. They yeah. they, you know, spoke up mm. and they played their part in that and a really important part. Yeah, so in any work that wanted doing, so there's eight eight new artworks that have been made by disabled artists mm. um, in West Yorkshire, any of them from Leeds. And some of those pieces do bring in contemporary issues. And I'm particularly thinking of a very, very detailed piece by Becky Moore working with Becky Cherryman. Becky Moore being a textile artist and Becky Cherryman being a poet. So this is like a very large wall hanging, which... Almost one half of it is is a poem that's been created. The other half is patchwork. We're just talking about patchwork, um, a patchwork quilt that covers it and and goes to the bottom. Um, and within that those patches, there are archival photos and there's quotes from people like. John Dawson, who I was mentioning from the past, but there's also contemporary quotes in there about disability at work from people's own experiences. Um, so that's a really, really interesting piece. There's a lot in it. And you can see that at Leeds Industrial Museum, along with the other work. And that exhibition, any work that wanted doing, is on till um, January next year. So there's oh, plenty great. of time to get over to see it. That's our next yeah. weekend plan sorted <laughs> then. Thank you very much. <laughs>
it just made me think that when we were in quite a jolly mood uh, going like on a romp to Manchester and I'd not been to the, the I'm going to say it wrong again, the the People's History Museum. Um, and and then we went into the uh, the exhibition and it really took the wind out of our sails when suddenly you reminded that you're dealing with here, not just... Uh, you know, a to the barricades kind of justice um, movement. Be like, oh no, people have been dying, and this is to prevent. This is artwork that's about people unnecessarily dying. It, it's just so unromantic, and I think sometimes we can get swept up in a bit of romantic to the barricades. And I think barricades. you have you have to because yeah. you've got to keep going, haven't you? It's yeah, got to, you've got yeah, to have yeah. a laugh in your life. Yeah, but yes. um, it was uh, the artwork in that ex- that that exhibition was incredibly moving yes. and yes. really poignant and yes. then particularly that the yes. um yes yes what was Vince it that you were, Laws, Vince Laws is series of shrouds he calls them rather than right. banners you know shrouds called the series is called dwp deaths make me sick um Yes, which so that, of that they one... do, they should do, because that's a series of, of stencil sheets, mm. basically, um, that are commemorating the lives but marking the deaths yeah. of uh, a number of people who died, particularly after being adjudged to be fit for work by mm. the DWP, um, you know, when they clearly were not. Yeah. Um, you know, and having the benefits cut and often that having that benefit cut is the direct cause then mm-hmm. of people taking their own lives. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, is it, and that um, anger in yeah. that artwork yeah. really comes across yeah. in a way that, as you were saying before, takes the disability art in an occupational, cosy setting that sort of infantilized and pastoralized takes it well and truly out of that setting says this is dark this is punk this is anger yes um I mean, which originally, uh, disability art, I think, means all sorts of things to all people. I mean, originally, disability art was like the creative wing of the disabled mm. people's movement and was political. That's what it was. And, yeah. you know, and people defined it as art made by disabled people that reflected that experience of being a, a disabled person. And a lot of it was overtly political. And, you know, there's been a shift and I think there's some good in that, you know, that that. that that definition for many people has broadened and it means, you know, and some people would say any art that's made by a disabled person in some way reflects their experience and so therefore is disability art. Um, what I wouldn't call disability art is, is you know, that occupational therapy that's that's mm. led by a non-disabled people that's given to... People often make... Disabled people often make something of mm. that for themselves, Um but yes, it's a, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, as you were talking, then I had about three different thoughts, and I, I've struggled to keep hold of not one of them. <laughs> uh, no, that's all right. That's done. Oh yeah, that was it. You uh, you mentioned about was it in Wakefield that people were walking past those the shrouds? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, Yes, yes, because they're, you know, they're very immediate, aren't they? And they're very accessible and they're very, you know, clearly people can see what those are and mm. and, and connect with them. So, yes, I, I 
was, you know, really pleased to be able to show those in an exhibition a few years ago. It was called Piss on Pity. Um, mm. It was about disabled people's ambivalent relationship to charity, I suppose. Mm. Um <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, Piss on Pity, we had some of Vince's shrouds up there. So they were, you know, very prominent. In the, and the exhibition was in an empty shop unit in Wakefield. So, so many people, you know, would pass by, do a bit of a double take, come in, what's this, you know? And, and so many people had their own stories of dealing with the DWP, of the difficulties of, of trying to get the benefits that they needed to support them and give yeah. them dignity and just ability to live the lives you know and it is um, it's yeah, exactly so that common. um we were we were talking about it today about uh the nhs and the state the nhs is in at the moment and i think it's similar where they they are such um issues that are often dealt with like behind closed doors that are in families that are already struggling that are people are feeling isolated and then as soon as you have someone an artist which is what artists are best at speak out then it, suddenly everyone goes oh my that was my experience that was my neighbor's experience that was my auntie's experience and it 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 opens those floodgates for going hang on we're all experiencing this up and down the country mm-hmm. um and i i think if <laughs> it's how it's going to happen with the nhs where like yeah. i've i've had an my second death in the family that we feel was a preventable death today uh, that's been because of lack of care um, and just because the hospitals are not functioning as hospitals. Exactly, because they're not funded. They're, they're not funded. Properly, and, yes. And, and not... so people are dying and have been dying in our hospitals and, and in our, uh, yes. you know, so-called yeah. social care system. And it's another one that when it's grief and it's personal, you don't want, it's not your instinct to then turn that into something political mm. necessarily. Um, you know, maybe it's not your story or maybe, it, you know, you're being careful of family and friends and things like that. Um, but as soon it's it's got to happen sooner or later that these tidal waves like yes. how bad yes. does it need to get yes. for people to go enough is enough yeah. I mean having said that I'm sure you feel I certainly feel like I've been saying that for decades I'm yeah, sure you yeah. you feel like you've been saying it for decades and decades well um, like how bad yeah. does it need to get for everyone to just say yeah. enough is enough yes you wonder, don't you? Yeah. But you're right. I mean, that's the power of art, isn't it? To bring yeah. some of that to attention and to, yeah, speak for people. Mm. Yeah. I think yeah. Op- open the floodgates yeah. and make the private public. Yeah, yeah. 